Welcome to Hope. Yes, that was me, your fearless pastor, taming the wild beasts of the Middle East a couple of weeks ago. Actually, um, in fairness to me, I had watched after group after group went and nearly got bucked off that camel to their death. And so I was going to make sure that did not happen to me. The guides kept saying, just lean back. Just make sure you're leaning back. So I was making sure I was leaning back. Anyway, this was at a colony and um, kind of halfway between Jericho and Jerusalem. And from where we were riding that camel experience, we looked down, and here's the Jordan River Valley, the country of Jordan on the far side, and just tucked behind these mountains, you can't really see it, it's the village of Jericho. So we're on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem, which is the road, Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, it happens on that road from Jericho to Jerusalem. And this colony was called Genesis Land, and they were trying to give us a little feel, a presentation, what would it have been like uh, to have been Abraham and how important would hospitality have been to survival in that part of the world during the biblical times and that sort of thing. It was just an experience, a part of a 10-day trip uh, that I got to go on with my wife, Wendy, and about 30 other people touring the Holy Land, just a fantastic experience. And so I am going to do my best not to make this a what did Pastor Scott do on spring break kind of a, a, a feel. It's actually I want it to be a sermon and tie into what we've been uh, talking about. Just to warn you up front, it might go a little longer than normal. Normal for us is about 70 minutes. It might go 75 minutes. Seems to be the longest it's gone this weekend. But we'll get you off to lunch and just no problem. You'll be, you'll be fine. So um, where my experience connects to what we're actually talking about as we make our way through the Gospel of Mark... I'll try to make those uh, connections. I can guarantee you I'll be talking about my experience in Jerusalem uh, in three weeks when it's our uh, celebration of Easter. So if you like this sort of thing, come back to it. Miracle March is what we're doing, making our way through the Gospel of Mark. Today we get to Mark chapter 9, and we're ending our look at the Gospel of Mark only halfway through uh, the Gospel, and we'll talk about why that is uh, when we get there. Mark 9 is the story of the transfiguration and we're going to make our way there, but I want us to start kind of back in the beginning. Uh, Jesus begins his ministry with the Sermon on the Mount. And hopefully, as you made your way in, somebody gave you a piece of paper with a couple of maps on it. Uh, pull out the side of the map that has the, the red stars. And this is kind of a zoom in on the northern region of Israel that's called Galilee in the Bible. And they still call it the region of Galilee today. So around the Sea of Galilee... And Jesus headquarters his ministry in the city of Capernaum, which is right on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. He preaches the Sermon on the Mount just up the hill from Capernaum. And so that's where we are in this picture. This is my wife, Wendy, and me, the Church of the Beatitudes. They build a church. This is what they do uh, in the Holy Land. They find something important that happens and then build a church on top of the place. So here's the Church of the Beatitudes. Beatitudes, just a fancy word that means blessing because Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount kind of redefining what a blessed life looks like. God blesses those who are poor in spirit. Maybe that's you today. God blesses those who mourn. 
God blesses those who are humble, who are merciful, whose hearts are pure. God blesses those who work for peace. God blesses those who are persecuted. A completely different way of thinking about what a blessed life looks like. It's how Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount. And then just a couple of verses later, in verse 17, he says something that's really important if we're actually going to understand what's happening in Mark 9 in the story of the Transfiguration. So where Wendy and I were with our picture, the view that we had from that spot, this was the view. Down the hill to Capernaum to the Sea of Galilee. And read with me what Jesus says, Matthew 5:17. Read it out loud. Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. So they didn't call uh, the scriptures the Bible in Jesus' day. It was the Hebrew scriptures, but more often than not, they referred to it as the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets. The law of Moses comes from the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's where we get all the laws, the rules, the commands, uh, the regulations that God gives to God's people. Here's what it looks like. Here's how you live together as God's people. The law was of utmost importance uh, to the people of Israel in Jesus' day and continues to be uh, today. So Jesus goes on talking about how important the law is. Verse 18, I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You see, in Jesus here, he actually sounds a lot like Moses. If you turn the page uh, way back to the beginning, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6. When Moses and the people of Israel are about ready to finally enter the promised land, he starts talking to them and reminding them of the importance of the law. I'll start in verse 1. Uh, these are the commands, decrees, and regulations that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. You must obey them in the land you're about to enter and occupy. You and your children and grandchildren must fear the Lord your God as long as you live. If you obey all his decrees and commands, you will enjoy a long life. So way back in the beginning, in the law of Moses, there's this connection between obedience to the law and the kind of life that we enjoy. Obedience to the law and a long life, perhaps even an eternal life. And then let's read together verse 3. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. Listen closely, Israel, and be careful to obey. Uh, the Hebrew word that we translate listen is Shema, and it shows up a couple of different times in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Shema Israel, listen Israel, hear O Israel. In fact, it becomes one of the primary prayers that the people of Israel pray on a very regular basis. Similar to the way we might pray the Lord's Prayer on a regular basis, the people of Israel pray the Shema. Hear O Israel, listen O Israel. It's important to carefully obey the law of Moses, the Shema, this listening is a reminder of that. Moses goes on in verse 6. You must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Here's verse 8. Tie them, tie the laws and commands, tie them to your hands. Wear them on your foreheads as reminders. Verse 9. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. 
So every hotel room that we stayed in in Israel had the law uh, put on the doorpost. This is called a mezuzah. It's a little box, and inside the box they have a tiny little scroll of Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Shema, hear, O Israel, listen, O Israel, a reminder how important the law is, how carefully we must obey the law of Moses. We made it to Jerusalem and to the western wall of the Temple Mount, the holiest place for uh, the people of Israel, and it's sometimes called the Wailing Wall, and you would see people like this all over the place. Uh, They would have their books, they would have their Bibles or their Talmud or their prayer books, and they'd be uh, reading scripture or praying And they would have these leather straps wrapped around their hands. And at the end of the leather strap was another mezuzah. Or the Hebrews call it mezuzah. The Greeks call it phylactery. Phylactery. And sometimes in the Gospels you see Jesus kind of, I know, criticizing the religious leaders of his day, calling them kind of show-offs. They love to have wide phylacteries, Jesus says. That's what we're talking about here. Um, But they do it as a reminder. It goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, This middle picture, we were up in Magdala, which is again back in Galilee, just kind of around the Sea of Galilee from Capernaum. Mary Magdalene is from Magdala, and they've uh, archaeologically unearthed a first century uh, village of Magdala. And part of what they found is this massive stone that was part of the synagogue, and it has little inscriptions that are like pictures of the temple, and so they know it's connected to worship. They believe it was used in the synagogue when they would unroll the scroll, whoever the Bible reader was, they had to unroll the scroll, and they would place it on that stone as they read it. Everywhere you went, constant reminders how important it is, be careful to obey the law of Moses. Uh, Our tour guide was a man named Stav. Here's a picture of a couple of our tour guides. Stav was with us every day. And the first day, Stav made sure that we knew he was a non-observant Jew. Non-observant Jew. In other words, very proud of his Jewish heritage, uh, loved his country, loved being a part of the nation of Israel, was a, a soldier in the Israeli army for a couple of decades. But he just wanted us to know he does not follow the law of Moses religiously. Uh, Svi wasn't with us every day. He was just with us a couple of days. Mostly he was in uh, the home office of this travel agency and kind of making sure all the details were taken care of so we could get where we needed to go. He's an observing Jew, an observant Jew, and he's wearing a yarmulke. And when we arrived in Israel, it was a Friday afternoon. We got to our hotel about four in the afternoon. Sabbath begins at sundown on Friday for the Jewish people. So it was a couple hours until the Sabbath begins. And as a, an observant Jew, he could only be with us for a little bit before he had to go to get ready to observe the Sabbath. Uh, the guy at the western wall with the phylactery, the leather straps on his hand, an Orthodox Jew who they were even more concerned about being careful to obey the law of Moses. Again, everywhere you went, you saw this uh, reality, how important it is, how important it is, how important it is. So when Jesus is teaching and he begins his ministry by saying, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, I did come to fulfill its purpose. And most of Jesus' ministry happens up in that northern region, uh, the region around the Sea of Galilee, but that's not where we started our trip. Uh, Turn your map over to the side that shows uh, kind of the entire nation of Israel and raise your hand when you find Tel Aviv. No, don't do it. It's not on there. Uh, (laughs) Tel Aviv is not a biblical town, but that's where we went. And Joppa, about the center, right on the Mediterranean coast. Joppa is currently a southern, I would call it a suburb of Tel Aviv. 
And a couple of biblical things happen in Joppa. Uh, First of all, it's where Jonah goes. When God says to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and tell the people of Nineveh they need to repent of their sins, Jonah says, no thanks, and he goes completely the opposite direction, and he ends up in Joppa and gets on a ship and uh, tries to run away from God. In the And the reason he wants to run away from Nineveh is he thinks they're sinners and they don't deserve God's grace. They don't deserve forgiveness. Stay as far away from them as possible. Then in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 6, Joppa shows up again. It's the home of Peter. And so this church where Wendy and I are, we were there a couple of weeks ago, St. Peter's Church commemorating the events that happen in Acts chapter 10. Uh, The other thing that's going on in Acts chapter 10 happens up the coast in Caesarea. King Herod, there was nothing there, and then King Herod decides to just, let's build ourselves a port. And so it becomes the most important um, uh, port where they're doing their trading, and ships are coming in, and he builds it in honor of Julius Caesar, the emperor of the Roman Empire. And there's a guy in Acts chapter 10, stationed in Caesarea, his name is Cornelius, he's in the Roman army, and an angel says to Cornelius, go down to Joppa, Uh, Find this guy, Peter, have your guys bring him up to talk to you about faith uh, in Caesarea. And so as that's happening, Peter down in Joppa is up on the roof of his house praying, and the Bible says it was about noontime, which again is a detail we just kind of skip over. But if you're an observant Jew, you don't skip over that detail. There are specific times every day where you stop whatever you're doing and you pray. And noontime was one of those times. He's praying the noon prayer. It's possible he's praying the Shema up on the roof of his house and he falls asleep. Isn't that great news? You ever fall asleep when you're praying or find it difficult to stay focused when you're praying? Peter does. And in it, he has a dream and God shows him a whole bunch of food that has been, his whole life he's been told, you can't eat this. It's unclean. The law of Moses tells us we cannot eat this food, but in this dream, God says, it's okay for you to eat it. Don't call unclean what I have made clean. Peter wakes up from his dream. He's trying to figure out what that means, and there's a knock on the door, and it's Cornelius's guys from Caesarea. They get Peter. They head back up to Caesarea, and again, you've got to read the story. Guess what Peter says when he gets to Cornelius's house? He doesn't say, thank you for inviting me. He doesn't say, it's so great to meet you. He says, you know, it's against the law for me to be here. It's against the law for me to come into your home. It's against the law for me, a Jew, to associate with you, a Roman, a Gentile. The law of Moses had made it very clear who you can associate with and who you cannot associate with. But then Peter says, but I just had a dream and God told me now it's okay for me to be with you. So is Peter abolishing the law of Moses or is Peter fulfilling the purpose of the law and the prophet? Well, we'll answer that a little bit later on in the message. Um, Most of Jesus' ministry, as I said, happens around uh, the area of the Sea of Galilee. And for this next part of the message, I'm going to need some kids to come up and help me out. Any kids? Yeah, don't even raise your hand. Just come running up. We need a whole bunch of you up here. And I need half of you over on my right and another half of you over on my left. So some people over here and some people over there. Pick a side, any side. It doesn't matter. Each side is equally good. You're what? Okay, thank you. I'm glad that you're here. This is great. Okay, and so what we're going to do, this is the Sea of Galilee right here in the middle, so you need to stay out of the water and go off to the sides a little bit. Scoot over. Okay, it'll be a narrow body of water. That'll be just fine. So if you're looking on the maps, over on this side, we've got Galilee. 
You are all Galileans. Nice to meet you, Galileans. And you love the law and the prophets. Then we've got the Sea of Galilee. And over here, you can't see it on, on this map because I zoomed in too far. But on your maps, it says the Decapolis. So everybody over here, they're part of the Decapolis. That means 10 cities. Yes, the Decapolis is fantastic. It's a Greek-speaking Greek speaking part of the world in Jesus' day, a Gentile part of the world. Remember, Peter says it's against the law for me, a Jew, to associate with you, a Gentile. They had a natural barrier, the Sea of Galilee, that kept the Jewish people separated from the Gentiles in the Decapolis. You wouldn't go, if you were a Jew over in Capernaum or Magdala, you wouldn't go over into the Decapolis because it was filled with unclean Gentiles. But if you've been reading through the Gospel of Mark, which I know you have because you're an awesome church, one of the things you see Jesus doing all throughout the Gospel of Mark, going from one side of the lake is typically how they call it, one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other side, back and forth, back and forth, from the Jewish side to the Gentile side, back and forth. What's he doing? He's teaching. He's doing miracles. He's accomplishing the purpose of the law and the prophets. So there's a couple of miracles that happen, one on each side. So you're the Galilee side. Uh, there's a miracle where Jesus feeds 5,000 people. Have you ever heard of that miracle? Loaves and fishes and the feeding of the 5,000. It happens in Galilee on the Jewish side of the lake. Do you know there's another feeding of a multitude that happens in Mark? It happens over on the Decapolis side. Jesus feeds 4,000 people over there. And we hardly ever think about that. one. We always just talk about the feeding of the 5,000. But on the Decapolis side, they feed 4,000. What's going on? And it says in the Bible, in Mark chapter 6, he feeds 5,000, and there's 12 baskets left over. Everybody say 12. 12. Feeds 5,000, there's 12 left over. In Mark 8, he feeds 4,000, there's 7 left over. Everybody say 7. seven. And we just kind of read through like, what? those details don't matter. What's the next story? But they matter to Jesus. Listen to this. This is in Mark chapter 8. After the feeding of the unclean Gentiles on the Decapolis side, the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus and his disciples are in the boat going back across the lake, and the disciples start arguing amongst themselves. Can you guys start arguing with one another? How do you argue? Do you argue? You guys don't argue? Do you guys argue? Yeah, exactly like that. And Jesus says, stop it. Stop arguing. What are you arguing about, he says. This is, oh, wrong place. Mark chapter 8, verse 17. Why are you arguing? They're arguing because nobody brought food. They just did a miracle of feeding of 4,000, and now they're out of food, and they're arguing about it. Uh, Don't you know or understand even yet, Jesus says, are your hearts too hard to take it in? You have eyes, can't you see? You have ears, can't you hear? Don't you remember anything at all? When I fed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread, how many baskets of leftovers were there? How many baskets of left? Yell it out. 12 baskets of leftovers, right. And when I fed the 4,000 with seven loaves, how many baskets of leftovers did you pick up? Seven. Seven. And then this is what Jesus says. Don't you understand yet? Don't you understand yet? So we were on the Sea of Galilee with our tour group on a boat going from Capernaum to the other side of the lake. I think we actually have a, a picture of it. You can put it on, yeah. And we're reading through these stories in Mark 6, 7, and 8. Don't you understand yet? And We did not understand. We had no idea. What is Jesus' point with, why do these numbers matter? So, let's see if, let's do the math. Let's see if we can figure out why the numbers matter. So, why would the number five, he feeds 5,000 on the Jewish side, why do the people of Israel, the Jews, why is the number five important? 
Have you been listening to anything I've said? All the, what are the first five books of the Bible? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The Torah, the law of Moses. Be very careful to obey the law of Moses. It comes from the first five books of the Bible, right? And then the number 12 was an important number too because there was Abraham who had a son named Isaac who had twins named Jacob and Esau. And Jacob had 12 sons. Can you imagine that? 12 sons. And they become the tribes, kind of like the states that we have in America. They become the tribes of Israel. Five and 12, very important numbers. And Jesus is saying, I'm the Messiah that the people of Israel, who love the law, who have the 12 tribes, I'm the Messiah they've been waiting for. Over on the Gentile side, they feed 4,000. The number four, it's a little trickier, but four is an important number in the Bible. It, it represents, it's always kind of pointing to the physical or the created world. So there's four directions, north, south, east, and west. And there's four physical elements, earth, wind, fire, water. And uh, for the Jewish people, they would have these prayer shawls, a, a kind of an article of clothing. And most clothing doesn't have corners, but the prayer shawl purposefully has four corners. So they can remember when they're praying to pray for the whole world. And then the number seven represents perfection or completion. So on the Gentile side, when he feeds 4,000 and there's seven leftovers, Jesus is saying, I'm not just the king of the Jews. I'm not just the savior for the people of Israel. I'm not just their Messiah. I'm the Messiah. I'm the king. I'm the savior of all people, of the whole world, Jews and Gentiles. Does that make sense? Do you understand yet? Yeah? Okay, you can go take your seats. Thanks for playing along, you crazy Jews and Gentiles. So Jesus is doing this kind of stuff all the time, and, and people are missing a lot of it all the time. And the Pharisees, they hear about it. The Pharisees are a, a religious group of leaders in, in Jesus' day. And so they come to Jesus, and they're like, have you ever played horse? And uh, you have to prove it at the end if, after you make it. They come to Jesus, and they're like, prove it. We've heard you've been doing all these miracles. We need you to do one more miracle to prove you really are who you are. So let's read together about the miracle that Jesus does for the Pharisees. Mark 8, verse 12. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. When he heard this, he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why do these people keep demanding a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth. I will not give this generation any such sign. Now, in Matthew and Luke's account of the same story, they add a phrase, except for the sign of Jonah. No more miracles, no more signs, except for the sign of Jonah. Jonah, who gets swallowed by the fish, is in the belly of the fish for three days, and then is resurrected. Jesus is going to be buried for three days and then resurrected, the sign of Jonah. This is this transition, pivotal point in Jesus' ministry, halfway through the book of Mark. It's no longer about all of these miracles to kind of prove who he is. Now all systems go heading to Jerusalem, heading to the cross. He begins to predict his death. The disciples don't like it. They don't want to hear about it. He begins to say things like, if you really want to follow me, pick up your cross and follow me. He starts saying some difficult, difficult stuff. And then we get to uh, Mark chapter 9 and the story of the transfiguration. Uh, on the close-up map that you have of Galilee, if you can find Nazareth, just kind of to the east of, uh, or the west of the Sea of Galilee, Mount Tabor is where the transfiguration happens. It's kind of on the H of Nazareth. And he goes up on that mountain with three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. And he's joined up there by two guys from the Old Testament, Elijah and Moses. 
Why not King David or Solomon? Uh, why not Abraham? Why Moses and Elijah? Well, Moses and Elijah represents the law and the prophets. And a prophet was someone, a man or a woman, that God would use to communicate an important message to the people. And the trick was to know, is this prophet a true prophet or a false prophet? A lot of false prophets in Jesus' day, a lot of false prophets in our day. How do you know true prophets from false prophets? There's a movie that came out in uh, 2001. It's a claymation movie called The Miracle Maker, one of my favorite movies that tells the story of Jesus. If you're looking for a family-friendly movie that gets your kids excited about the story of Jesus, I would highly recommend uh, The Miracle Maker. And part, one of the main characters in this movie is Jairus' daughter. So a couple of weeks ago, Eli preached... Uh, about the story in Mark chapter 5 where Jairus, a leader of the local synagogue, asks Jesus to heal his daughter who is sick and before they get there she dies and Jesus raises her. So she's this uh, character in the movie and Jairus and his wife, they're having this conversation as their daughter gets sicker and sicker, should we take her to Jesus? When should we take her to Jesus? And they're trying to figure out, is he trustworthy? Is he a true prophet or not? And here's how they, in the movie, figure it out. Take a look. You must take her to him. What? You must take her to Jesus. Rachel. Oh, please. Cleopas, it's you. You must tell him. How is she? She is dying. No, she is not dying, Rachel. Jairus, are you so afraid of them? Have they got such a hold over your life? God is my life. Not Man, not any man. And your daughter, what is she in your life? I think we should listen to this, Jesus. What? What? No one ever lost their soul by listening to a liar, only by believing him and following. But if he speaks the truth... The truth? We have nothing to fear from the truth. Do we? No, no. We must question Jesus, see how he defends himself. Yes. You must listen. Why should the people think their leaders do not listen? I will invite Jesus and his band of followers to my home. And we'll see whether he really is God's prophet. Why have we come here? They don't want us here. I don't know. But let's eat before they change their minds. <laughs> this was not wise, Cleopas. What will this achieve? It will make fools of us. Master? Master, we are honored by your presence at our humble feast. Although we hear you prefer to keep company in another part of town. Uh, yeah. Yes, Master. We realize you would rather be eating with tax collectors and sinners. Why is that? <laughs> those who are well don't need a doctor, only those who are sick. I haven't come to call good people to repentance, just sinners. Just sinners? You can't come in here. Get her out of here. Mary. If this man were a prophet, he would know what sort of woman is touching him. 
She is a sinner. Mary, all your sins have been forgiven now. He's saying he can forgive sins again. It's blasphemy. Be at peace. Now we know for sure. What do we know? You've heard all the rumors. Now you've seen what he does. I've seen. I've seen him do good. Good. You saw that woman. Is she good? He has... power. So at the beginning of the clip, I don't know if you noticed, they kept using the word listen over and over again. We should listen to Jesus. What harm has come from listening to Jesus? Shema Israel. Listen. And then at the end, Jairus says, I've seen him do good. So the purpose of the law and the prophets, what is the purpose of the law and prophets? The prophet Isaiah says it's this. Be just and fair to all, do what is right and good. And as you do that, it displays the righteousness of God. Isaiah is pointing to Jesus. The Lord is coming soon to display his righteousness, to be perfectly good and perfectly right and perfectly just and perfectly fair. But the purpose of the law and prophets is to help us live more and more that way all the time. But the religious leaders in Jesus' day, they view him as not being good. He's hanging out with sinners. They think Jonah was right to run away from the Ninevites. They think uh, Peter was wrong to associate with Cornelius, a Gentile, an outsider, a sinner. They're confused about what's right and wrong, what's good and what's bad. And so part of what we see as the scriptures progress, the whole point of being righteous, it's not about how well do you follow laws, it's about how good are you. Read the next verse with me, Isaiah 56, verse 2. Uh, We'll put it up on screen. Read it out loud with me. Blessed are all those who are careful to do this. Remember the Shema said, be careful to obey the law. Now Isaiah is saying really what that means is be careful to do good, to be just, to be fair, because as you do that, you display the righteousness of God. Jesus comes and that's what Jesus does. And everyone is, some people believe it and some people don't. And the people that don't are the people that are supposed to know the purpose of the law and the prophets. So he's up on uh, Mount Tabor, the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and Elijah. And then God's voice speaks and God's voice says something very specific. This is my chosen son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Shema Jesus. It used to be, uh, hear, O Israel, be sure to follow and obey the law and the prophets. Now God is saying with Elijah and Moses representing the law and prophets, listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. It's not doing away with the law and the prophets, but it's reminding us what is the point, what is the purpose of the law and the prophets, to live like Jesus lives, which is impossible for us. I don't know about you, I am not good and right very often or just and fair, and we mess up all the time. And so we need that grace of Jesus to pick us up and say, let's try it again tomorrow. That's what the Christian faith is all about. And then it gets to my favorite verse in the story of the transfiguration, verse 8. Suddenly, Peter, James, and John look around. Moses and Elijah are gone, and they saw only Jesus with them. Only Jesus. Say that with me. Only Jesus. One more time. Only Jesus. This is my first trip to the Holy Land. Uh, became a Christian when I was seven. 
started working in a church when I was 23, so for more than half of my life, I've been trying to share the stories of Scripture in a way that helps people find Jesus, find that grace, connect with only Jesus. It was an absolutely surreal experience to be there. I would keep leaning over to my wife, Wendy, and just like a, a little boy at Christmas, you know, I can't believe we're really here. I can't believe we're really here. And I wasn't the only one in our group. And there were lots of other groups who were having similar kinds of experiences from all over the world. This is a group of Chinese Christian tourists. And we saw them at multiple different spots. They were easy to identify because of their really bright pink scarves to help keep them together so you know nobody would get lost. We only lost one person in our trip, and only for about an hour, so I don't know, it was fine. But maybe we'll wear pink scarves next time we go. Anyway, this is at Caesarea, that complex that uh, Herod built where Cornelius was um, stationed. We also saw them in Capernaum, the headquarters of Jesus' ministry on the Sea of Galilee, and it's where Peter's home was. We also saw them in Nazareth, a couple of different places to visit in Nazareth. There's the home where uh, Joseph and Mary and Jesus, where they lived when Jesus was growing up, the carpenter shop. And then there's the place where the angel appears to Mary and announces to Mary, you're going to be the mother of Jesus. It's called the Annunciation. So this is the Basilica of the Annunciation. This is just what they do. They build a church anywhere that something special happens. They build a church on top of it. And so this is the Basilica of the Annunciation. It says, verbum caro, factum est, et habitavit in nobis. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelled among us. And you go into the basilica, and it actually looks a lot like Hope Ankeny on the inside. Yeah, unexposed, unfinished, or exposed, unfinished concrete, right? And then you can see kind of a railing here, and uh, everything is built on top of each other in the Holy Land. So to get to the original, you have to go down. So we had to go down, and you could see this cave area where they think maybe that's where the angel appeared to Mary. And kind of at the mouth of the cave, they've got an altar there. And on the altar, it says the same thing that it says outside. The word became flesh, but they've added a word once you get inside. They've added the word hic, H-I-C. It's a Latin word that means here. The word became flesh here. And I got to tell you, there's something really cool and really powerful about that idea when you're touring the whole, like God actually came here. God is with us, Emmanuel. And I don't know about you, but like when we're singing together today, oh trampled death, where is your sting? The angels roar for Christ our King. The word became flesh here as well. And it can do it for us. So we climbed out of uh, this at uh, the bottom of this church, and we went back outside, and I saw this group from China again. And the picture doesn't really uh, communicate it, but you could see the passion they had, the excitement that they had to be there, and I found myself kind of tearing up. Did you see in the news again this week, the, there was a raid by the Chinese government on a Christian church in China, and they locked it and chained it up, and they told people, you cannot worship God, you cannot gather together as the church. You know how hard it is to be a Christian in China. And I was just watching them thinking, how does this happen that a farm kid from Iowa ends up at Nazareth? And how does it happen that people from clear on the other side of the world, uh, somewhere in Asia, end up in Nazareth? And the answer is only Jesus, right? What kind of a God humbles himself and is born as a human being? Only Jesus. What kind of a God goes looking for those who are lost, those who are considered unclean or sinners or outcasts or marginalized? 
Only Jesus. What kind of a God says, let me show you the path to a blessed life. If you want to be great, you need to become a servant to all people. And what kind of a God has a grace that is unending, a love that is unfailing? Only Jesus. Who, who can provide hope in the darkest of our nights? Who can rebuild a life when it feels like everything's crumbling down all around us? Only Jesus. Who can wash away my sin? Who can make me whole again? Only Jesus. Who has the words of eternal life? Only Jesus. Who is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets? Only Jesus. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together. So Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would listen, that we would be careful to listen and to follow whatever it is you are up to in our lives and in your world during our generation. Uh, we pray that the ways in which we sort of miss the point and the ways in which we think we understand but we just don't understand, we pray, Lord, that you would remove our blindness and you would unstop our ears. You would let us see, you would let us hear so that we could find your grace more and more all the time. Lord, thanks for coming to us. Thanks for being here with us, wherever we are. You promise never to leave us, never to leave us orphaned or abandoned, but that you are with us always. Wherever we go, you are here. Lord, help us feel that presence. We pray that your grace would find us and that that would change everything. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.